Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. My text for the morning is Psalm 60 and the fourth verse. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. Have you ever thought about the significance of a flag? This morning on the 245th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, I put our American flag out on the front porch, as no doubt many of you did as well. It's a symbol of the precious blessings of liberty and justice that gave birth to our nation. And perhaps like me, when you were a youth in school, you learned the story of Betsy Ross, who sewed the flag called the Stars and Stripes during the American Revolution in 1776. Maybe you heard the story of Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star-Spangled Banner in the year 1814, when he observed the British bombardment of Fort McHenry in the Battle of Baltimore during the night of September 13, 1814. And at dawn the next morning, he was able to see the American flag still waving in the breeze, a sight that inspired him to write these words, and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Our flag is a symbol of our country. It stands as a representation of the ideals that make up America. And just as our nation has a flag, we, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, also have a flag. Our text speaks about it. Thou hast given a banner, that is, a flag, a standard. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee that it may be displayed because of the truth. You might ask today, preacher, what is our flag? Our flag is the Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious person and work. The cross of Christ, the gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ, my friends, is our banner. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 in prophecy describes him as our flag. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. That is, a flag, an ensign. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. What lovely words are those. The rest of the Messiah, the rest that he gives, the safety and security that is under the banner of the Messianic King, God's people, even among the Gentiles, will find rest for their souls. That's the glorious prophecy of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. So Christ is our banner. Interestingly, Romans 15, 12 quotes Isaiah 11, verse 10, and it quotes it in terms of the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say that the message of Christ crucified is the church's flag. Just as America has old glory, so the church has Jesus Christ as its banner. Thou hast given a banner 
to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now, you may know it's not as much the case anymore as it was in former times, but military campaigns, the idea of warfare, is where we find this image of the flag. The flag or a banner is commonly associated with the idea of warfare. Interestingly, in the sixth chapter of the Song of Solomon, Solomon is describing the beauty of his bride, the Shulamite. And he says, Thou art all fair, my love, as Tirzah, beautiful as Jerusalem. He says, terrible as an army with banners. Now, if you brethren use that as a compliment for your wife today, I dare say she might not be real happy. You are as terrible as an army with banners. But you know what that means? It means you're so pretty, I feel intimidated. The word terrible means that I'm awestruck, I'm speechless. She is so lovely that he feels inhibited and self-conscious. That's how pretty she is. And of course, an army with banners, an army that flies its flags, would be an intimidating sight, wouldn't it? So the idea of a flag is typically associated with warfare or an army. And interestingly, we took our text from the 60th Psalm, and the historical background behind this psalm has to do with a battle. You may notice the caption above Psalm 60. It says, to the chief musician upon Shushan Edith, Mictam of David, and these are probably musical references which describe the cadence in which the song is to be sung and probably the key in which it is to be pitched. The word miktam means it's an instructional song. So this psalm was written to teach or instruct the children of Israel. And it goes on to say, When he strove with Aram Neharaim and with Aram Zobah, when Joab returned and smote Edom in the Valley of Salt, 12,000. Now, this is the longest caption above any of the psalms, Psalm 60. And you might say, Brother Mike, I don't have any idea what this is talking about. Most of us are familiar with the story of David when he fought Goliath, but the other episodes are not as familiar to us. This is one such episode. You'll find this episode recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And it is after David has been acknowledged as the king by the entire nation. He is at the zenith of his power and popularity. And he goes forth on these military campaigns. And particularly, he is in what we would call modern-day Iraq, near the river Euphrates, when he writes Psalm 60. And while he's there, he receives word. Here's the background. While he's in Iraq, far away from Jerusalem, Near the river Euphrates, he receives word that the Moabites and the Edomites have decided this is a good time to attack Jerusalem. So while the king and a good portion of his army is away from home, the enemy has decided to form an alliance and to attack the city of David. And he is overwhelmed. He's concerned, as you see in the first few verses, as he says, O God, thou hast cast us off, thou hast scattered us, thou hast been displeased, O turn thyself to us again. You, you, you feel the worry and the anxiety in David as he feels that this may be evidence that God is displeased with them. And he says in verse 3, Thou hast showed thy people hard things. Lord, these are difficult times. I thought that all was going well, but you must be upset with us. Thou hast made us drink the wine of astonishment. But I want you to notice the tone changes in verse 4 
as he says to God in faith, thou hast given a banner or a flag to them that fear thee, that it may be displayed because of the truth that thy beloved may be delivered. Save with thy right hand and hear me. David is praying for God's deliverance from this battle. And of course what happened, if you want to know the outcome of the battle, Joab was able to return from Iraq. He shows up in time to meet the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And Joab and his men slay 12,000 Edomites. The battle is turned in the favor of Israel. Victory is theirs. And uh, that was a wonderful military campaign as far as its outcome is concerned. So it's in connection with the idea of warfare that flags were once used. Flags symbolize victory in battle. Flags were often a form of communication to the soldiers. You may know that before they had two-way radios, walkie-talkies, cellular technology, that one of the ways that the leaders would communicate to the foot soldiers during the midst of the battle as to what they wanted them to do is they would use flags to send certain messages to the soldiers. So flags and military campaigns are often connected. You are no doubt familiar living this close to the coast and uh, the naval vessels that we've seen around us. You may know that navies have typically flown under colors. The flag would be positioned at the masthead. So militaries have used flags. Now I want you to notice now with this brief introduction about the significance of a flag and the church's flag, which is Jesus Christ, I want you to notice our text suggests that the banner that we have is a gift from God. Thou hast given a banner. This banner, my friends, is a gift from not Betsy Ross, not our founding fathers, but God himself. Of course, we value our national flag because of its origin. We often think about where it came from. How did we receive it? What were the circumstances of its birth? And the origin of the flag, of course, gives us its value. Where did it come from? Well, the flag of the church, my beloved, came from God himself. Thou hast given a banner. David, all the way in modern-day Iraq, as he thinks about the fact that Israel was under attack, and worries about what needs to be done and awaits the outcome of whether Joab was successful or not, comforts himself in the knowledge that the banner that flies over God's people was given by God himself. And of course, when we understand the source of this flag, it adds meaning and significance to it. I want to draw several parallels for a few moments this morning between the flag metaphor and the Lord, who is our banner. A flag, or a standard, or a banner, or an ensign, again, symbolizes a common cause. That's the first thing I would say. Nations and armies and navies have flags, as we've already stated. America has old glory, or the stars and stripes. England has the Union Jack. Russia has the hammer and the sickle. You may know that each nation has its own flag and it symbolizes the common cause that the citizens of that country share together. In armies, divisions, companies, regiments, each have their own flag. 
They rally around that flag. It suggests a commonality that we all share the same mission. A flag speaks of the idea of a common cause. You may know that causes and organizations have flags. There are movements afoot in popular culture in which the group has adopted a flag that they display. And that's a very common thing. A flag sends the message that we share a common cause. And each adopts a banner that represents its cause. My beloved, did you know we as Christians have a common cause together? Now, everybody has a cause. Whether they know it or not, can articulate it or not, everybody has a cause. Somebody says, my cause is cleaning up the environment. I'm into recycling. Well, that's a good cause. I don't see anything wrong with that. Somebody else says, my cause is to save this endangered species. Well, good. I'm glad somebody's interested in that. But may I say, whatever your cause may be, whether it's clean water, whether it's some political cause, environmental cause, social cause, whatever it may be, there is no cause that should occupy our attention more important than the cause of God in truth, the cause of Christ. I want to say that this is a cause the cause of Christ, worthy to be defended. You remember David in 1 Samuel 17 in the story of his battle with Goliath, his brother Eliab told the young lad that you're out of your league. You know, what are you doing here, David? Go back and watch the sheep that dad gave you responsibility for. And David answers his brother's words with this question, is there not a cause? But that's something that the rest of the soldiers had no doubt forgotten. They were so intimidated by Goliath's size, the imposing sight of the giant of Gath, that everything paled into insignificance in comparison with the threat of Goliath. But David says there's a bigger issue at stake here. It's not just a matter of the evident facts that he's bigger than we are, that he's stronger than we are. The big picture is that he represents paganism and we represent a greater cause of the glory of God. And David says, how dare this uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living? And here's the first time this word is mentioned in the entire narrative, the living God. The rest of the soldiers, his brothers included, even King Saul had forgotten about God. And they failed to interpret the events of the moment, the circumstances around them, in terms of the larger picture of the glory of God. My friend, I ask you today, have you learned to interpret what's happening in our world today in terms of the glory of God? You say, Brother Mike, what I see around me is economic problems and social tensions, cultural wars. I see human exploitation. I see people that are divided over one thing and another, and I'm troubled by it all. I ask you, have you learned to interpret it all in terms of what does God say about it? And what will be to his honor and praise? The glory of God, my beloved, is the great umbrella concept under which everything that we experience in life should be interpreted. And David says, there's a greater cause than just winning a battle in the Valley of Elah. Yes, Goliath should be defeated, but it's because he has defied the armies of God. He has defamed and denigrated the name of our God, Jehovah. And David says there's a cause. I want to tell you the cause of Christ, my friends, 
which the banner of the church represents, is a cause that is worthy to be defended. It's also a cause that deserves to be prayed for. Ephesians 3.14, the Apostle Paul says, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family, both in heaven and in earth, is named. Notice the family of God, some of them are in heaven, some of them are on earth. But the whole family bears the name of our Father, and he says, it's for this cause that I bow my knees unto that Father. The Apostle says, the cause of Christ is worthy of my prayers. I want to ask you, dear friends, what really deserves your prayers? You say, well, I pray for my health. Well, that's a, that's a fine cause. We should let our requests be made known to God. It's not wrong to ask God for our health. You say, I pray for my financial well-being. That's okay. Anything that troubles you deserves to be taken to God in prayer. But I want to say the most important thing that we should pray about is the cause of Christ. In fact, one of the first petitions in the model prayer is, Thy kingdom come. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray about the kingdom of God. The old rabbis used to say that he does not pray who fails to mention the kingdom of God. No matter how much it may appear that he's praying, how long his prayer may be, how elaborate his prayer may be, if he doesn't mention the kingdom of God, he is not truly prayed. And my beloved, may I say the cause of the church, the cause of Zion, the cause of truth is worthy to be prayed about. And then it's a cause not only worthy to be defended and worthy of your prayers, it's a cause that deserves your and my commitment. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For this cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day. The Apostle Paul says, The cause of Christ is the reason that I do not give up. I want to ask you, dear friends, what is it that keeps you going? There's always temptation to give up, isn't there? You ever get discouraged? You ever get tired and weary of the way? Indeed, I feel myself at times to be uh, sliding down the slippery slope, losing heart, losing focus, just tired and fatigued, spiritually speaking. But you know what keeps me going? The cause of Christ. For this cause we faint not. It's a cause, my friends, that deserves my endurance and your commitment. By the way, Commitment is not a popular concept in the modern world. It's not uncommon to hear people today say, well, I, I want to maintain a hands-off approach. I'll, I'll, from a distance, I'll be involved, but I won't be fully committed. I want to say, dear friends, the Lord calls upon us to fully commit our lives, to lay down our lives on the altar of Christian service. The apostle says in Romans 12, too, that we're to offer our bodies a living sacrifice. And you would offer your body on an altar. On the altar of discipleship, you and I are to lay down our selfish interests and goals and aims and comforts for the greater good of the glory of God and the cause of Christ. For this cause, I will not faint. I'm going to keep going. My beloved, I want to keep on keeping on, don't you? I want to bite the devil until my teeth fall out and then gum him to death for the rest of my life. Never give up. Never give in. Never give out. Oh, my beloved, I would say today that you and I need to be totally committed. Lock, stock, and barrel. If Jesus totally committed himself for you on the cross, then that deserves reciprocal commitment from you or me to commit ourselves in mind, body, and earthly possessions 
to the cause of Jesus Christ. So a flag speaks of a common cause. And I hope today here at Old Bethel Church, you and I share a common cause. What a gift that we have a cause that will never fail. This banner is a gift from God. And secondly, what a gift to belong to the people of the living God. This banner promotes unity. A flag unifies, doesn't it? It's because people share a common cause that a flag gives people common identity and promotes the idea of brotherhood. Our flag identifies the citizens of our country, and it sets them apart from others, giving them a common tie together. For instance, the colors serve to unite and unify the people that share them. It becomes a rallying point for each one. We mentioned Isaiah 11.10 just a moment ago, the Messianic prophecy that says, And in that day shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek and his rest shall be glorious. Notice the 12th verse in this context. Isaiah 11, verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel. Notice how the flag, the ensign, is a rallying point. Shall assemble the outcasts of the nations and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now what he's saying here is God's people who have been scattered are now unified, brought together by the common flag that identifies them as the people of God. That's the idea. The point is that it is Jesus Christ and his cross that unites you and me as believers together. Do you know what our rallying point is here in the church of Jesus Christ? It's not that we all like the same fast food restaurant. It's not that we all prefer the same brand of automobile. It's not that we all like the same sports team. I have some strong opinions on fast food restaurants, even stronger opinions on sports teams. But that's not the ground or the basis of our fellowship. Do you know what brings us together, unites us? It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified, right? And if we ever get away from that, we will find ourselves divided and separated, not able to get along with each other. The reason I can get along with your rough edges and you with mine is because of Christ and what he's done for us. I think it's significant, as we observed last week, the Lord's Supper, that the communion table does not have a dozen different dishes. It doesn't have a dessert and a vegetable and a fruit and a meat and a bread No, my friends, there's a very simple element on that table. Unleavened bread and fermented wine, symbolic of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. You see, that's our rallying point. You come to the table and I come to the table because we share that in common. Though our personalities may differ, though our social status and class may be different from each other, my friends, it's Jesus Christ that unites us. It's the cross that binds us together. Indeed, a flag promotes unity. And what a gift to belong to the people of the living God. I'm a part of the church because of Jesus. You're a part of the church because of what he's done for you. He's our banner. God has given a banner. What a gift that we have a cause that will never fail. What a gift that we belong to people who share our reverence for Christ. And then thirdly, I would say a flag is a symbol of victory. You may know that little boys used to play a game in which they would capture 
the other team's flag. Capture the flag. And oftentimes in ancient warfare, if one army captured the enemy's flag, the battle was over. It was considered to be done. That was the goal, to capture the flag, because the flag denotes victory. Interestingly, in Exodus 17, verse 15, after the children of Israel had crossed the Red Sea, the first battle that they have is the battle at Rephidim. And the people were complaining against Moses because they were thirsty. Give us water to drink. And Moses says, why do you tempt the Lord? And of course, God gave them water as Moses smote the rock. And he gave them water out of that rock to assuage their thirst. And then it says that the Amalekites came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And as the battle took place, Moses lifted up his arms and while his arms were aloft, Israel prevailed, but when his arms became heavy and they began to droop, the enemy, the Amalekites, began to prevail. And so Aaron and Hur stood on, Moses, on each side and they hoisted Moses' arms to maintain their elevated posture. And when his hands were held aloft, Joshua discomfited the Amalekites and his people with the edge of the sword and the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in the book. I want you to remember how this battle turned out and rehearse it. Tell it again and again, a rehearsal. Notice in Bible languages after the fact, not before. You know, when we have a wedding, we have the rehearsal before the wedding. But the word rehearse means to hear again. So it's something after the fact. Rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. And Moses built an altar at the end of this battle, and he called the name of it, listen, Jehovah Nissi. For he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Sounds like God is upset with the Amalekites. Now, Jehovah Nissi means the Lord is our banner. The Lord is our flag. Notice the victory was theirs, and Moses built an altar. He named it, God is our banner. I want to tell you, dear friends, Michael Goins is not your flag. The church does not rally around me. The ancestors who played such an integral role in Bethel's history are not our rallying point. The symbol of our victory is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ is our banner. The Lord, Jehovah, is our banner. So a flag is a symbol of victory. And I want to say when Jesus Christ died on the cross... He won the victory for each one of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love that old song, Victory in Jesus? The Lord has given us triumph. I love to be on the winning side. I get tired of my family curse that we're always on losing teams. You know, every once in a while I like to be on a winning team. But you know, it doesn't matter how many little league teams or how many of my favorite sports teams are on the losing end. I want to tell you, I'm a winner and you are as well already by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Thanks be to God who always causeth us to triumph in Christ. You see, the battle is over. The war has been accomplished. And that's why we can comfort God's people today with this message. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your sins have been covered. Your transgressions have been absolved. 
For Jesus Christ has won the victory and the adversary of your souls has been defeated once and for all at the cross. I'm sure you're like me. You look around the world and you see that Satan is wreaking havoc in our nation. And he is threatening the very foundations of the things that made America a great nation in the first place. The founding fathers had a vision that was based on the word of God and Judeo-Christian principles. You see it in our monuments in our nation's capital. You see it on our coinage in God we trust. You see it everywhere, dear friends, quotes from the Bible and admissions, acknowledgments that we depend upon the blessings of providence for our future prosperity. But I want to say, dear friends, that much of that is under assault and attack today. But whatever happens in popular culture, in our country, in the world at large, I want to tell you the great battle has already been won and you're on the winning side. Isn't that good news to hear that the battle's over? If you've lived through the ravages of any kind of war, you know what good news it is to hear that the war is over. You know, VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and VJ Day, Victory in Japan, in World War II, were happy times. I mean, what good news it was to hear that victory is here. Churches were packed in America as people wept and cried and prayed to God and thanked Him for the positive outcome to be victorious in the battle. My beloved, may I say every Lord's Day here at Bethel Church should be a victory day as we remember the good news that Jesus Christ won the battle and he defeated the enemy, the devil. In fact, I think that's what Isaiah chapter 59 verse 15 is saying when he talks about the Holy Spirit and he says that when the enemy shall come in like a flood, That is, when the devil marshals all of his forces, all of the evil powers of hell against your soul. When the enemy comes in like a flood, then the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard. That is, a flag, a banner against him. Yes, my friends, the glorious banner that the Holy Spirit has given to the church to lift up against the enemy is that Jesus Christ has already finished the work of redemption. and He's already defeated the devil once and for all. And no matter what he does... In your life right now, he can't take away what Christ has purchased for you and me by his sovereign and free grace. The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up us. In other words, when the devil comes to you and says that you're a loser, you tell him that you've already won through Jesus Christ. When the devil comes to you and reminds you of your past, you remind him about his future. He says, look at what you used to be. You say, look at what you're going to be. (laughs) Cast into the lake of fire. Finally trampled beneath the feet of King Jesus who is victorious over all. Don't you love that verse? When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise the standard, shall lift the banner against him. And that standard, my friends, is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. What a gift to be on the winning side. Now the point that we're developing is that God has given us this banner. Our text says, thou hast given a banner. This flag didn't come from some government that designed it for its citizenry. It didn't come from a particular person that has given it down through the ages to his descendants, and now it's been given a greater circulation in the public square. This flag came from heaven itself. Thou hast given a banner. And the flag of the church, Christ and him crucified, is a gift that God has given us that will never fail. It's a gift that means we belong to God's people, and it 
reminds us that we're on the winning side. Now, surprisingly, this banner represents love. Listen to this verse, Song of Solomon 2.4. Now, I've been talking in military imagery. And you know, battles are full of blood and guts. They're not pretty. And the sweat, the toil, the tears, the dirt, the grime, the strenuous labor in any battle is not a lovely sight. But the banner that flies over the church, although it is a victorious banner, it is a victory that has been achieved by love. For listen to Song of Solomon 2 verse 4. He brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me was love. Flags may convey a number of different kinds of messages. You know, a flag may warn a vessel, a ship, that it's nearing rocky shores. A flag may uh, direct a plane into the, its terminal or its gate. A flag may warn people that it's dangerous to get into the ocean because of riptides or rip currents. Flags convey a number of messages. Flags may convey messages of warning or resistance. I think of the don't tread on me flags that were popular in colonial days. You've seen the image, no doubt, of the serpent that's coiled. In other words, be careful where you step because you may be bitten. So this person is flying a flag. And if you came upon somebody who's flying that flag, it is meant as a warning, isn't it? It's meant to say, I resist oppression by my government. This is the message I'm trying to convey. This is my flag. When you fly a flag, you're sending a message. You're preaching a sermon. You're telling people what you believe. And somebody says, this is my flag. It's a flag of resistance. Other flags are flags of domination. Some flags are designed to intimidate and threaten. But the Shulamite, in Song of Solomon 2 verse 4, found refuge under Solomon's banner. She says, his banner over me was love. Now what you have here is a young lady who's gone on her first date with a man who's really the king, Solomon. She doesn't know it. You see, she's a sharecropper's daughter. You remember the story of Song of Solomon? She's a, she's a farm girl. And she's been out setting fox traps, trying to catch the little foxes that spoil the vines. And Solomon has come down from Jerusalem. That's the story of Song of Solomon. He's come down in his t-shirt and blue jeans. Not bedecked in his kingly garb, but he's come down to check on his holdings. He had let out his vineyards unto keepers, sharecroppers, and now he's coming down to see how they're getting along. But he's sort of disguised. He's not, he doesn't have a crown and a royal entourage around him. He's come down to the hill country, Bethlehem, Judah, and he meets this young lady who's uh, the Shulamite, and she feels unworthy of him. She says, I'm black, but comely. She means the sun has looked upon me, and my skin is suntanned, and it is evidence that I'm not one of the wealthy girls. I have to work outside with my hands. And, but she's, she's just awestruck. She's swept off her feet by this charming gentleman who happens to be the king. She doesn't know he's the king yet. And their first date, Song of Solomon chapter 2, he takes her out to a fancy restaurant. He brought me to his banqueting house. And the flags are flying. Now, you know why the flags are flying, and I know why the flags are flying. It's because Solomon's the king, right? But she doesn't know that yet. She said, his banner over me, what does all of this mean, all these flags? Well, 
To the other people around, the flags meant the king is here. But to her, it meant that this is so special. I've never, never dreamed I would eat at such a fancy restaurant. And to be in the company of such a handsome man, she is in love. His banner over me is love. I want to tell you, dear friends, that though we preach a message of victory and triumph and defeat of the adversary at the cross, the message comes across to God's little children as a message of God's sovereign love. He loves me. He loves me, this I know. He gave himself to die for me because he loves me so. Isn't it wonderful? Yes, I love the pomp and circumstance of these grand hymns of the faith, like onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. I love the pomp and circumstance of those hymns. But I'll tell you, dear friends, beyond the regal glory of victory and King Jesus' triumph over all of his foes, there's a personal walk and relationship that I have with him as his bride and that you have with him in our hearts. This is the time of love, isn't it? Have you ever seen somebody that's in love? Maybe once you were in love. Some of us may have to think back quite a ways to remember that. <laughs> no amens, please. Wasn't that an exciting time? It's scary, but oh, how exciting. Have you forgotten what it was like to be in love with Jesus? Your first love. Remember what that was like. And start doing what you did back then. Do the first works and maybe you will find those old feelings come back again. You know, that's what ha needs to happen in relationships. Somebody says, oh, she's, uh, she's telling the same story again. I just, you know, we start seeing the faults of the one that we live with. And, oh, look at all of his, his idiosyncrasies. And his, he's got all these problems and he can't hear and he can't see. And my friends, start remembering what it was like way back when. And you were just amazed that this person would see anything positive or redeeming in you. And that they would want to be with you. That you're wanted. Stop taking it for granted that Christ wants you. Stop feeling like he owes you anything. My beloved, remember what a vile sinner you are and what I am. And be amazed and spellbound once more that he would love the likes of you and me. Yes, indeed. My beloved, his banner over me is love. The banner the church flies is the banner of love. What a gift to be loved. Notice to whom God has given this gift. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear thee. Now, by the way, that is always a designation of the people of God. For the wicked do not fear God. The unregenerate have no fear of God before their eyes. You show me a people who fear God, I'll show you somebody that has been born again, a child of God. God gives a banner to his people, his children. It's the church that is the recipient of this banner. This flag gives identity and unity and purpose and refuge to a definite people. It's not a universal flag. You know, the American flag does not fly over every nation. It's not a global flag. It only means something to those who are citizens, right? To those who share its values. And the same is true 
for the blood-stained banner of King Jesus. Jesus is not every man's savior, but it means something to those who are his children. God has given a banner to them that fear him. And notice, finally, why the Lord has given this flag to his people, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now, a flag in the flag box in the top of your closet is really of no use. You need to put the flag out on the occasions that call for it. It needs to be displayed. A flag is intended to be flown, to be hoisted high. You ever noticed a flag is put atop a flagpole? And the purpose of that elevated position is so that it may be seen from a distance. A flag is meant as a visual aid. Maybe you're fighting a battle in the next quadrant and you wonder if the battle deserves your continued effort. Or perhaps you should give up and surrender. And then you turn and you see the flag hoisted high on the hilltop. And it gives you the courage to keep fighting. I'll tell you, dear friends, the flag of the church, the banner of love, is intended to be hoisted high, not to be hidden under a bushel basket. And why should we display it? The text says it should be displayed because of the truth. It's because we have truth. We understand a message that is truth. There are many lies in this world. There is much in this world that passes for truth that is just human opinion. But I'm telling you, dear friends, we have something special in the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And it's because of that truth that the church needs to lift high the banner of Christ. That's our divine commission. Isaiah 62 verse 10 says, Gather out the stones. On the highway, lift up away and the highway and make it straight. And he says, lift up the standard for the people. The church is commissioned to fly the flag. Do you know why? Because King Jesus is in residence. You may know that Buckingham Palace flies its flag when the queen is in residence. When she isn't at the palace, then the flag is uh, struck. And may I say, dear friends, we fly the flag because King Jesus is on his throne. He is high and lifted up. And how do we fly this flag? By preaching and proclaiming Christ in him crucified. 2 Corinthians 4, 5 says we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. The individual believer also must not be ashamed to display his or her colors. You go to work, you go to school. You mix and mingle with your neighbors. You say, well, I'm just trying to keep my religion private. No, my friends, we're called to be flag bearers. We're called to display our colors. Don't be ashamed to let others know that you love the Lord and that you're following him. Fly the banner of King Jesus without hesitancy or embarrassment. At school, at work, in the public square, my beloved, May we never be ashamed of Jesus. Thou hast given a banner to them that fear him. On this 245th anniversary of our nation's beginning, and as we've thought about the American flag and what it represents for our country, let's not forget that we too have a flag. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we fly it high, and may we not be ashamed. You say, if I put my flag out, my neighbors may take issue with me. Put your flag out anyway. You know the story of Old Glory. The merchant who sailed his ship with Old Glory finally settled in the Nashville area, Nashville, Tennessee. When the Civil War started, 
He's in the southern state, Tennessee. He would fly old glory. <laughs> and it polarized him from many in his community and even many in his own family. They didn't appreciate it. But my friends, whatever the political statement was, whether you agree with that or not, I will say this, that we should not be ashamed to fly the blood-stained banner of King Jesus, the banner of love. Never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. For God has given a banner to His children so that it may be displayed because of the blessed truth that we understand. Yeah.